Well, that's our prayer, O Lord, that you would indeed speak to us through your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that grinds away at us and that encourages us and that pokes and prods us. Thank you for what it means to gather together and to have the encouragement of Christian friends and to be a part of your church where we can be accountable and we can grow and we can develop and we can mature. Father, thank you for how you so often use this time when we sit still and we stop talking and we open our Bibles and we listen and we look at the Word and we let it do its perfect work. And so that's our prayer right now, Lord, that you'll use the message to encourage and to strengthen us in our walk of obedience. And we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes when you sit down to hear a message, you wonder if the message is going to have anything to do with you. So I thought I would help prepare you for the message for a few minutes here. Um, If you've said lately, I really need to get rid of some stuff, then this message is for you. If you look around your house and you find that the flat surface areas of your world, you know, countertops, shelves, garage floors, closet shelves, closet floors. If you look around your world and your flat surface areas are getting or are out of control, this message is for you. If you said recently... I really need to go on a diet, but can't quite get going, this message is for you. If you plan to get going and join the gym, and maybe that's been your plan for up to a couple years, you need this message. If you're paying interest at the end of the month on late bills or credit cards, you need this message. If you've been, and realize it, or even if you don't realize it, you've been watching too much television and not reading enough books lately, you need this message. If you find that it's been a long time, you can't remember the last time that you memorized a Bible verse, you need this message. If you find yourself consistently running late for appointments and church and work, you need this message. I'll tell you what, why don't we just say it together? I need this message. I really need this message. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the reason that I need this message is because it speaks to my inner man. It goes right down into the core, the boiler room of the decision-making areas of my life, it speaks to the to my integrity, and it has everything to do with my self-discipline, which has everything to do with the quality of my spiritual discipline. Have you ever noticed that relationship? That your spiritual walk, that is, you've responded to the gospel message, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. As Gary prayed this morning, you know what it is to go to the cross, to lay down your unrighteous sin, and to receive the righteousness of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. By grace, through faith, no merit of your own, and you're born again, and yet you've been struggling to grow, and have you noticed 
that your personal discipline has a lot to do with your spiritual discipline. Well, Paul is going to talk to Timothy, a pastor in a city called Ephesus, in a church in Ephesus that's kind of messed up, and he's having Timothy put it in order. This is going to come up again later on in chapter 4. He's going to talk about exercising ourselves, disciplining ourselves unto godliness. As we read our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, remember that what we're talking about specifically here and our primary application is to the spiritual leaders of the church. There are two sets of leaders, and he's going to address them both in this passage, elders and deacons. They are the enduring office of the church given for church leadership. Paul wants Timothy to get rid of the bad leadership that's in 1 Timothy 1 to appoint qualified leadership. And that's why in chapter 3 where we are, he's going to click off a whole list. And that's what we've been talking about. Let's read the list. Here it is. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires or desires to the office of an overseer, that's the same as the pastor or the bishop or the elder board, he desires a noble task. It's a high calling. It's not a shoddy work. It's a noble task. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, finally, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that would be unbelievers, people who don't even know Jesus, but they can look at that guy and they can say, that is a good guy so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As I've referenced, our first application is to challenge the men in Fellowship Bible Church who would aspire to the noble office of spiritual leadership, being an elder, a deacon, even moving into the the more uh, full-time role of the pastorate. All spiritually speaking in church leadership, all at the same level. Later on, he's going to move into the list of what the diaconate, the church servants, what their requirements are. Why? Because he doesn't want the testimony of God's church to be disgraced, both within and without the walls of the church, by having people, men who are in leadership, become unqualified or sinful and become a a bane, a disgrace an embarrassment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in verse uh, 2, notice going into verse 2, because of this noble task, notice that he must be above reproach. Nothing, Nothing held against him. And the very first thing Paul said, remember last week, the very first thing Paul tells Timothy, you want to look around and as you get rid of the bad elders, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, and as you appoint the right men into into leadership, chapter 3 now, he says the first thing you look at is their marriage. Look at their marriage. He has to be a one-woman kind of a man. His mind, his eyes, his heart, they're all committed to his wife. 
Because it does us no good to have a spiritual leader who's got eyes for another woman, who's got integrity issues in the area of sexual morality. It's going to kill the testimony of the church. So he deals with the marriage, and now he's going to narrow it down. It's like we're coming down a funnel. Look at his marriage. If that doesn't pass the test... Throw him out. If that passes the test, let's look a little closer at the man himself. And so let's pick up the next three qualities here. If you listen well and if we can kind of smoothly work our way through it, hopefully we can make good progress in just the few minutes we have left. Take a look. Look, Notice what the next three are. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, verse 2. Now three character traits all dealing with self-control and the personal integrity of the man. To be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Let's just stop with those three and let's see what Paul wants Timothy to understand about these things. The first thing we want to do is we want to look at these three marks of a qualified man. Three marks of a qualified spiritual leader. Let's just look at these words and understand them briefly. The first word that he uses here in the ESV, it's translated, he is sober-minded. It might be of interest to you to know that if you were to study the Greek grammar on this word that is translated in the English Standard Version, sober-minded, it's translated into the King James Bible into English, vigilant. What does vigilant remind you of? A watchman on a wall, right? He's vigilant. He's alert. He's watching. The NIV, New King James, the New American Standard will use the word temperate. Temperate. Sober-minded and temperate aren't so much words that we use that much. The Greek word literally means, if it were to be translated in a more literal way, without wine. So the word that's translated in our Bible to be sober-minded is to be without wine. Now, the first thing, W-I-N-E, not W-H-I-N-E, okay? W-I-N-E, the stuff you drink with alcohol in it. And he says, later on in just a minute, he's going to say, though, that he's not to be, in verse 3, the first thing he's going to say is he's not to be a drunkard. He's not to be drinking alcoholic beverage till he's under the influence. So is he repeating himself? What I think he's doing is he's using a broader definition of the word that the King James Bible translated really well there, that word for vigilance. The idea is he's not nipping the bottle, he's not under the influence, he's not fuzzy-minded, he's not diminished in his his, uh, ability of his senses to see what's going on. He's sharp, he's aware, he's sober-minded. Someone who is alert, clear-minded, thinking straight, It also includes the idea of not given to excesses. He's under control, not distracted. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think that's a good quality for a spiritual leader in the church? Somebody who's sharp, clear-minded, aware of what's going on, not given to excesses. What a good quality. Has to do with the man and his integrity, doesn't it? has to do with his maturity, has to do with his self-control. And that's the next word that is used in the passage. The second of our three marks are self-control. The NIV translates this self-control as well. Some Bibles will translate it prudent. Prudent, that's the, the ability to, to assess the situation and make wise decisions. 
you look around at the circumstances and to make a prudent choice would be to look at the options and to make the very best choice. And sometimes to make the very best choice, what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself lesser things. You have to turn away from distractions and you've got to say that's the better way. That's the prudent choice. It takes self-control. It means you're disciplined. It means that life's not a game to you. You live with a sense of accountability to a holy God. You exercise self-restraint. You can deny yourself frosted donuts from sheets when you're filling up at the gas pump. When you really, 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 really want one. But you know you don't need it. Amazing how a little thing like that can just grab your attention, isn't it? Not to speak of even greater things. Would you agree that you really want your spiritual leaders to be men of self-control, self-restraint, men who know how to say no to themselves? I would think that that's a very important quality. The third mark of our spiritually qualified man is this. He's to be respectable. Notice what he says. He says he is to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, that is, literally without wine, totally alert, not fuzzed over, means more about an alertness and a self-control of the mind than it means nipping the bottle. We'll talk about that in verse 3. Self-controlled, prudent, the ability to not goof around and to narrow down the choices to deny yourself, to do what's right, even when it hurts. Respectable. Notice that you can't end up at respectable if you haven't done the first two. They're tied together. If you're not sober-minded and you're not self-controlled, then you are not respectable. You're going to have glitches. You're going to have flaws. You're going to have what Proverbs calls flies in the ointment of the apothecary. What the Song of Solomon talked about and in the little foxes that nip the vine. There's going to be flaws and you're going to be noticeable. That guy lacks respect because of his self-control or the lack of prudence. This is an interesting word in the Greek as well. It's the word cosmos. Cosmos. It's a word that some of you might know that means the ordered world or the order of the universe, sort of. It means, uh, literally means the ordered world. The opposite of it helps us understand it. If it's not cosmos, that is the ordered world, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, it's an orderly world. It's consistent. It's set up. It's set in place. It's not, the opposite would be chaos. It's not chaotic. It didn't spring up out of a wellspring of scum, out of a pond, and just evolve. No, it's a very ordered cosmos. It's a very systematic thing. That's the world. That's the word in the Greek that's translated in our Bible, respectable. Your King James uh, Bible translates it, of good behavior. Respectable, of good behavior. I'll use a name because he's not here in this service. When you look at Wayne McKenzie, don't you think respectable, of good behavior? You just can't see him getting out of order, can you? Now, he's not a laugh a minute anymore in this time in his life, is he? Because, you know, I notice that the older you get, the more serious you get about spiritual things. The older you get, the more, more you realize how serious sin is in the lives of people. 
the longer you work in church leadership and the more you grow in Christ. It's not that you don't want to have a joy that can bubble over. It's not that you don't want to be happy and have a good time playing softball and, and camping out at the Bible conference and family camp out weekend. But there becomes, the older our guys get at the elder board, a seriousness, a gravity. This is serious business. And they are self-controlled. They're not goofing around. Their lives are ordered because they're respectable and they have a great weight of responsibility. Well, that's what it means. Those are the marks of qualified men. Our first application is to the spiritual leaders or aspiring spiritual leaders of Fellowship Bible Church. But remember... Throughout our entire study here, the reason we're taking our time through chapter 3 is because these qualities are the minimums. We can take our Bible and we can look elsewhere in the New Testament and we see that every one of these qualities, parentheses around apt to teach, but all of these qualities are just the essence of Christian character demanded of all believers everywhere. There's no, nothing on the list that, that you're exempted from just because you're not going to be an elder. And so it's our template for spiritual growth for the men of our church without apology. Men, we're calling you to be this. Step up. Make change. Hold yourself up against the standard of God's word and where you're lacking. Do something about it. When the red light comes on in your dashboard and it's an oil light or an overheat light, you, even if you don't know how to fix it, you do something about it. You stop doing what you're doing. You stop. You get help. You make change. So as we go through this series, as the dashboard lights come on your spiritual dashboard, do something about it. I'll try to encourage you with a few things that we can do. Three marks of qualified spiritual leader. Three marks that every man needs to have. Three marks that if they're present in the life of your man, ladies, wouldn't you say it would fill your heart with joy? I would love for my husband to have all three of those and be above reproach. What a challenge. Well, don't beat him down if it's not there and encourage him. And I don't want to beat anybody down. And I said with you at the beginning of this message, I need this message. Because things like the flat surface areas of my life, things like promptness, and orderliness, and the cleanliness underneath the seat of my truck from trash, sometimes are indicators, aren't they, that you're not as disciplined as you ought to be. That you're slipping, and it's a fight. Second thing I want you to think about for just a second is three kinds of men who live disciplined lives. I want to encourage you with some models. Three marks, now three men. And just think about it. It's real easy. And don't forget these guys and remember that they are real people. They really live. They're not super giants. They're just men who, by faith, believed God and acted in obedience. But God doesn't use men in levels of spiritual leadership or to lead others very often. Never according... uh, Just these are the qualities that... He expects to be there. Think about Joseph, Genesis 39. Potiphar's wife, beautiful woman, come in and grab a hold of him. What does he say? No! It's not because he didn't care about a beautiful woman. It's not because he didn't want to please his own flesh. It's because he was prudent. He was self-controlled and he was respectable. He could look at the situation and he could say, not the best decision. I've got to get out of here now. That's, that's how it works. Joseph did it. Stop making excuses for yourself. 
Moses did it when it says in Hebrews 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verses 24 to 27, it says that when he grew of age, he looked around and he determined that he would rather suffer affliction with God's people than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What's he doing? He's being prudent. He's living the ordered life of God's way instead of the disarray of the Egyptian lifestyle, feeding the flesh, doing whatever he wanted to, letting his mind go wherever it wanted to be, being whatever he wanted to be instead of walking in obedience to God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 quickly and let me show you that the Apostle Paul is another model. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, these are familiar verses. Pick it up at verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Joseph did it. Moses did it. There are many examples of God's men. Daniel did it. Nehemiah did it. They lived ordered, principled, disciplined lives. They assessed the situation and they lived within the parameters of what God said was correct and right. They denied themselves the pleasure of the momentary joy of the flesh of crossing the line and hence becoming vulnerable to Satan's traps. Paul worried about it. I take it that Paul was quite a mature believer at this time. Notice verse 27. We'll jump right in there. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is that? That's a mature man paying attention to himself, worrying about where God's will is and where God's will is not, and being fully aware that he can, in a moment of weakness, tear down the testimony of preaching for a for years and leading the churches and bring disgrace upon the name of Christ, or if he had a family, disgrace upon the name of his family, all because he lacked self-control and went for the glazed donut. Right there. Right there. Three marks, three men. How about three motives for living a disciplined life really quickly? They're all in 1 Peter, and I was thinking about how 1 Peter, um, actually one is in 2 Peter, but will you find 1 Peter in your New Testament? And we will, we will watch for the runway and bring it in for a landing very shortly. 1 Peter, and I want you to notice chapter 4, and I want you to notice how Peter uses the word self-controlled. Who, who was spontaneous? Who was full of strength and manliness? It was Peter, right? Peter who could make a bad decision in a hurry. And I think that in his maturity, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one of the things I think Peter worried about was his self-control. Self-control leads to spirit control. Spirit control leads to the blessing of God through a life of obedience. Peter says in... 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, look what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's a couple of our words. For the sake of your prayer life, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and so forth. What's his motivation for self-control? To have an effective prayer life, but the driving force is, number one, the urgency of the hour. This is 
Your dad's coming home from work and you haven't even begun to get the jobs done on your list when he pulls in the driveway and you don't get to go to the park and play ball if your jobs aren't done when he gets home from work and you realize, I've got 30 minutes to do 40 minutes worth of work. I'm going to make it happen. See, God's not an ogre, though. God's not just waiting to keep somebody from going to the ballpark and playing ball. But the point is, often we live like we're asleep in the light. The church is at rest when the church ought to be filled with a sense of urgency. And with that urgency comes this matter of self-control and prudence. I'm looking around. What are the best things for us to do right now in light of the fact that the Lord could return at any time and we have to give an account to our master? Listen, it's called self-control for a reason. It's self-control because no one else can make you do it except you. And so you've got to get the want to, and the want to starts at the foot of the cross. The want to starts when you come to Christ, and you admit your sinfulness, and you begin to become a new creation in Christ. You accept His salvation, and you are... Uh, therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, they're a new creation. And you start over, and God begins to work in you. Nobody can make this happen in you. But as you get up in the morning, do you ever think, today could be my last day on earth? Do you ever think, today could be the day Jesus comes back? Today could be the day that the doctor looks at me and says, your slap foot is caused by ALS, you got six months. What are we waiting for? Some of us need to kick it in a much higher gear. We're not living up to the knowledge that we have of where we are in our walk with Christ. And the urgency of the hour, Peter says, should motivate you to self-controlled living. Get rid of the nonsense. Focus on what is real. The second thing that Peter says is in 5.8. Notice what he says. He says in verse 5.8, Be sober-minded, there it is, and be alert, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. The second motive, the second motivation in my life for self-controlled living is that I have an enemy who's out to get me. Here's how it works. I live an undisciplined, careless life. Who cares? Nothing matters. I'm the man. I can do what I want to do. I'm tired of all those guys at church. They're legalists anyway. Blah, 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 blah. And the next thing you know, where am I? I am far from Christ. I am careless of obedience. I have no discipline going in my life. And the next thing you know, I'm in Satan's trap. And I am in so deep. I always think of the figurative language that God used when he spoke to Cain. And he warned him about acting in worship of obedience to him when he offered his offering in Genesis chapter 3. And he said, in chapter 4, he said, Sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you. And some of us don't realize that Satan is there waiting for our minds to become careless. The battle is in the mind. You need a sense of urgency for the hour Christ could come back. You need a sense of, of awareness of the enemy. He's wanting to, to fold you. He's wanting to waste your life. And the difference between a man that God can use and a man that his wife and family respects, sometimes the difference is not that wide and it's separated by a man who's been prudent and self-controlled 
and in a man who's been careless and let himself indulge in the donuts. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, and you can just look up at it, the third motivation is that it's a formula for spiritual growth. It's part of the formula for spiritual growth. 2 Peter 1, it's 3 through 8. He says in verse 6, Add to your knowledge self-control and to self-control steadfastness and to steadfastness grow in godliness. We referenced last week that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The evidence of God at work in me is a growing ability to guide myself, to rule over myself, to look at the choices and to deny myself the things that are outside the parameters of God's best for me. It's called self-control for a reason. When I was a youth pastor, and I've given this illustration many times, and I was working with young boys who would be struggling with some particular area of their life, let's just say cursing and swearing, and they got caught, turned into their mom, whatever, and they said, Pastor Van, I can't help it, they just come out. And I say, uh, hey, Jenk, what if I have my, my Louisville slugger and I follow you around? And every time you slip, slip with one of those words, BAM! You think you can overcome your cussing? Oh yeah, Pastor Van, I could, I could probably do that. You see, it's want to, isn't it? It's want to. You get hit with that slugger a couple times upside the head or in the back of your legs, you're going to want to. A whole lot different than you want to right now. That's what self-control is. Not Louisville slugger control. By God's grace, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a fight, brothers. It's a fight. It isn't amazing that an 88-cent glazed-over little apple pie at Sheets will make you break your diet. 88 cents. Five bites, it's gone. You the man. 88 cents, that's all it takes. You begin to scrutinize your life and you ask yourself, am I a man of self-control, prudence, orderliness, restraint? Am I respectable? Why do you think Paul went right to the core of the man? He looks at his marriage, then he looks at the man and he says the man has got to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. One reason is, is because speaking directly to the application to spiritual leadership in the church is that, number one, for many in the church leadership, for many in church leadership, there is very little accountability. Let me say that again. The reason Paul, addressing the elders and the pastors, and says self-control and prudence and sober-mindedness are essential is because for many in church leadership, there is very little accountability. You must be a self-guided spiritual leader. Look around at all the little churches that are pastored. I remember when I first came to Fellowship Bible Church, I didn't wake up in the morning and come into an office with seven full-time staff who knew I was late if I didn't come in, where we've had to put into place vacation policies because I'm not here by myself anymore when the elders used to tell me to go on vacation more, go hunting anytime I wanted. I had three elders, Woody, Jim, and Wayne. I didn't. That's why they told me to do it. They would get up and go to work 
16 years ago, and I would go to my little office in downtown Charlestown and be all by myself. So there you are. Lots of pastors and spiritual leaders have very low level of accountability in their life. And Paul says, you better have your act together. You better not be chaotic. You better be in order. And you better be self-guided. The second reason he went to this point is because for all in spiritual leadership, there is great responsibility. For all who are in spiritual leadership, there is great responsibility. For some, there's a lack of accountability, so you've got to have the qualities. For others, for all spiritual leaders, it's a great responsibility. And Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders, that means the spiritual leaders in your life, those who spoke to you the word of God, remember them, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Listen, all spiritual leaders need these qualities because you're making an impression and you are called to be worthy of imitation to those that are below you and coming along in Christ. Listen, I think this applies to all the men of the church, all the women of the church. Everybody influences somebody. If you're a father, you're in the head of a home, you're called to be the spiritual leader of your home, and this is so important because you have to be worthy of imitation. No, son, do what I say, not what I do. That's good for about five minutes. And you wait till he's 14, 15, 16, and he'll look at you and he'll say, well, he'll say, or his mother will get after him and he will look at his mother and he'll say, well, that's what dad does. Are you worthy of imitation? And then we already referenced the fact that Satan is out to demolish the work of the church. These are so important because if they're not there, it destroys usability. You're not usable if you're not in the realm, in the corral of self-control. You're out of control. Satan has you. God can't use you. Let's bow in prayer. Will you just think for just a minute before we're dismissed that there might be some specific areas that the Spirit of God is convicting you of. And if you would just step back and look at your life from a high point. Is your life in order? Are you continually running from behind? Is your life in disarray? For some of us, we've got to change. And part of it has to do with just the simple, ordinary, spiritual disciplines, the disciplines of our lives that bring things together, where we have the rule over ourselves enough to make the prudent choices, to deny ourselves the things that are bogging us down, to make the best choices not necessarily the funnest choices. Some of you young people don't even know what a disciplined life looks like. And you're being raised in a television movie, instant messaging world, media world that just tells you to do and be whatever you want to be. And I scream at you this morning. God's word screams at you this morning. You had better learn self-control or you will self-destruct. And you cannot walk like Jesus and not have self-control. So how is God going to tamper with your life this week? 
and start taking some steps in the right direction. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your good hand upon us. And Lord, where we need convicted, convict us. Where we need to learn a new set of priorities, teach us that set of priorities. Father, forgive us for so often just not being careful and allowing ourselves to take the easy path and the path of least resistance. Thank you for these standards that protect our church by having leaders that are qualified. Would you please bless the men in this room that our homes, our dads, our fathers, our husbands would be characterized by these qualities of self-control and discipline and that our children and our wives would follow with great delight as we enter into the freedom and the joy of a disciplined life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, counting on your grace to get us through, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.